Our scripture today is from 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 19. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that lamb without spot or blemish. Let's go before the Lord and pray. Our Father, we're so incredibly grateful today to be able to be here in this place and to call you by name and to worship you for all who you are. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for your kindness to us. We thank you for bringing us to yourself, Father. We thank you for causing us to be part of your mission in the world. Lord, we thank you that you not only turned us from enemies into subjects, but you turned us into family members. And not only family members, Father, but you made us a part of your work in the world. You gave us labor to do in your kingdom, and we're just so grateful that you involve us. And we're grateful, Father, that as you, as you use us in your work, you shape us into your image so that the work is not an end in itself, but it is a, a servant of the greater work of, of causing us to come into more full communion with you. And so I thank you, Father, for your many kindnesses to us. And I pray this morning that as we talk about global missions and the purposes of your heart in the world right now, I pray, Father, that you would be stirring by the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would wake us all up, all the more so. I pray that you would make us more focused, more passionate, more intense, more devoted to the things that you're up to, Father. I pray that you would uh, lead us into the great joy of being on mission with God in this world. I thank you so much for what you have done through this church over the last 10 and a half years. And I thank you, Father, for the many things that you have for us still in the future. And so again, Father, I pray that in your kindness that you would use this message for your glory and for our mobilization, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Training Leaders International was a ministry that was founded in 2009 by a guy named Darren Carlson in cooperation with some of the leadership at Bethlehem Baptist Church. Uh, TLI defines its mission like this. They say, quote, we exist to establish and strengthen local churches and their leaders around the world. The growing gap in theological education leaves the global church susceptible to false teaching, to decay, and even to collapse. We offer solid training that is culturally appropriate, effective, and reproducible. So what TLI does is they go to places in the world and they look for leaders that are hungry for education and that are able to mobilize a a certain number of people, and they ask those people to commit for three years of theological training at a college and seminary level. And so they take three trips uh, 
per year for three years and deliver a curriculum that begins with the attributes of God. We wanna make sure we're talking about the same God with that curriculum. And then they teach on biblical theology. So they're trying to help people from around the world tie the whole Bible together. And then the third course is on what is called hermeneutics. And that's not a man named Herman Udix. It's a word that means the science and art of biblical interpretation. So they're teaching people around the world how to properly interpret the Bible, how to ask and answer the right questions. And then from there, they give six courses that just work through books of the Bible or or at least portions of those books. So they start with Genesis and then the next course, which Ethan and I will be teaching is on Ruth and Jonah, which I'll say more about in just a second. Ethan has been with TLI for a number of years. In fact, he's one of their early trainers, and a few years ago, they assigned him to be the head of the Romania site. And so as Ethan began to look into that situation and talk with me about it, I committed to go with him once per year for all three years. So the first trip we took was uh, a year ago, February, and we taught the attributes of God there together. We kicked off the three-year program for these pastors and leaders in Romania. And then the second trip is happening this week. The plan is for us to leave on Tuesday and then to return on June 11th. The reason, by the way, we're teaching Ruth and Jonah is because Ruth and Jonah are, are both short books. They might seem like very different books to you, but they're both written in a narrative style, so they're actually similar in that way. One of them is in the historical section of the Old Testament. The other is in the prophetic section of the Old Testament. So they become really helpful laboratories that we can use to teach people certain things. So that's why the odd combination of of Ruth and Jonah there. While we're in the neighborhood, uh, we're going to stop by Albania and visit some of our global partners that are serving there. Amos and Meredith Anderson have been serving in Albania with World Venture for, I don't know, five or six years or something. They were part of a church planting team in a city called Korcha, and that went well, and so they were sent from Korcha to the capital city of Tirana, where they've been for about a year and a half laboring again to found churches there and just be a, a part of the gospel work that's already going on there in the city. So we're going to go there for two days to pray with them, to encourage them, and Amos had a bunch of stuff sent to my house from Amazon and from Walmart, so I get to be Santa Claus. He told me that by the time we're done, his children are going to absolutely love me, although I want to be clear with them that their father's the one that blessed them. I'm just the mailman, uh, basically, but we're going to mainly be there to encourage them and to pray with them, and then we'll go on to Romania for about nine days. We'll preach on both Sundays and then train the pastors for five days. In fact, Ethan tells me that the first Sunday, each of us is going to be preaching in three different churches. So we'll, we'll be pretty, uh, pretty busy while we're there. As I prayed about what I should do with this Sunday, I thought that it would be better for me to take a little bit of time to try to fan into flame our passion for global missions rather than to start John chapter 17, take two weeks off, and then try to come back to John 17. And so what I want to do with you this morning is look at the three places where Peter talks about uh, or or encourages the church to be sober-minded. That word just really jumped out at me. I had asked Pastor Sarin in, Al, in uh, Romania what he would like me to preach about in their churches, and he told me that the theme of holiness is something that they would really like to hear about, and so I landed on that word, be sober. Peter uses it three times, so I want to walk through that with you, and then I want to talk with you about global missions. I want to try to give us a big vision of the history and the, the flow of global missions and where we're at right now. Then I want to say a few more things about our trip that's coming up, and then finally at the end of the service, I want us to get in circles and pray together for God's work in the world. So let's turn our attention then to 1 Peter 13, and if I can read again just the first verse. Peter begins, therefore, 
preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The main instruction in this text is to set our hope fully on the grace that Jesus will lavish upon those who believe in him when he returns. That great day when Jesus comes and judges the living and the dead, on that day he will lavish a grace upon the righteous that is far beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine. And Peter wants us to fix our eyes upon that and he wants us to build our lives around that central hope in our lives. He wants us to plan, he wants us to pray, he wants us to talk and act in light of the great thing that is coming to those of us who believe. And so he tells us first then to prepare our minds. Now in the Greek language there, the word there for that is actually kind of funny. It, it, it literally says, gird up the loins of your minds. Now I've never heard anybody in our culture say, hey pal, why don't you gird up your loins? But what that was about is that in that day men wore uh, clothing that was more like robes, and so if they had to, to run somewhere or get somewhere quickly, the robe would impede their actions. So they would roll the robes up above their knees and about halfway up their thighs so that they, their loins would be girded and they would be ready to run. And Peter is saying, do this, but not with your body. Do this with your minds. Gird up the loins of your minds. Don't just sit around waiting for something to happen in your life. Set your hope fully on Jesus and then be prepared for action right now. Think of yourselves like emergency workers that have to be on call 24-7. Be prepared for action in your minds. Be ready. And then Peter adds, we should also be sober-minded, which more literally in Greek just means to be sober, as if from alcohol or other chemical things. Peter is saying, keep yourself away from all deluding influences. That's what he wants us to do. Prepare your minds for immediate action. Be sober from deluding influences in the world and set your hope fully on Jesus Christ. Die to the American dream. Die to every other small, small dream that there is in this world and live to the great, big, massive dream of the glory of God and Jesus Christ and all that he is doing. Now as to how we are to go about doing this, Peter doesn't say much here in this particular text. But since he focuses on the mind, I think it's pretty straightforward that the way we prepare our minds and the way that we become sober before God is by saturating our lives in his words. Our minds are going to be prepared. Our minds are going to be sobered as we let our Father's voice be the loudest voice in our lives, as we listen to what he has to say, as we learn to think the way that he thinks, as we learn to have the same purposes that he has. We sober up, beloved. I will tell you too, I've been walking with Christ for somewhere in the 30-year range now, but I'm still a little bit drunk with the world. We're all kind of drunk by living in this world, and the Word of God, one of its functions in our life is just to sober us up more and more and more day by day. So as we spend time with our Father, as we fellowship with Him by the Holy Spirit, as we let His Word saturate our minds, beloved, our minds become prepared our minds become sober. We become uh, clear in our thinking and fixed in our hopes. And so with that, Peter goes on to say then that as children of hope who long to obey God their Father from their heart, not from compulsion, but from their heart, he said that we should, be ref we, we should refuse to be conformed to the passions that ruled us before we knew Jesus Christ. We should refuse to get into the stream of the world and just live the way that the world lives. Instead, by the grace of God in Christ, 
We should learn to imitate the one who is holy, and we should learn to actually be holy in the same way as he is. We should be set apart for God. We should see ourselves as people who have been designated for God and only for God. We should be devoted to God, committed to God, focused on God, passionate about God. We should be people who are all about God. When we think of holiness, beloved, we often think of behavior. We think of don't do these things and do do these things. And of course, holiness is about behavior. What we do and what we do not do in this world matters very much in the sight of God. But nearer to the heart of holiness, beloved, is a heart that is set apart to love God above everything else. Nearer to the heart of holiness is a heart that is focused on God, passionate about God, and hungry for God above everything else. Indeed, I would say that holiness is passion for God expressed through action. Holiness is respect for God that is displayed through our surrender to God. Holiness is trust for God that is expressed through obedience to God. Or we could say that holiness really at its heart is about faith because faith believes that what God says is true and faith believes that what God says is actually best for us. Often what God says is best for us is not easy in the short term, but in the long term it's good. And so holiness looks to God, believes in God, and follows God all the way to the end. And in fact, holiness, we can say, is the destiny of everybody who believes in Jesus Christ because the Lord has said, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, am holy. 1 Peter 1, 16. Now, I don't know about you, but for many years of my walk with Christ, I heard that last line there, right there, that I'm supposed to be holy as God is holy. I heard that as a threat to me. Not that God was literally threatening me, but it just felt like God was commanding me something that was absolutely impossible. He's not speaking to unbelievers here, by the way. He's speaking to people not under the law, but under grace. He's telling believers, come, be holy like God. And I remember saying to God when I was young in Christ, Lord, I I just can't do this. I felt so burdened by this command. But one day the Lord opened up my eyes and I came to see that that command is a promise and it is an invitation. First of all, it's a promise. He's saying you are going to be holy as I am holy. I'm gonna do this in you. I'm gonna make you to be like me. I'm gonna wash you. I'm I'm gonna restore you. I'm gonna establish you. I'm gonna strengthen you until you are like me. I am gonna do this work of holiness in you. And then I came to see this as an invitation, as if our Father is saying, come and be like me. I am inviting you to come and act like me. I will give you the command. I will make my will clear. I will give you power. I will give you personal fellowship through the Holy Spirit. You will not be alone. And I invite you, come and be like me. See what I see. Feel what I feel. Say what I would say. Act as I would act. Come, be holy as I, the Lord, am holy. Beloved, this is an invitation. And Peter is saying, be sober for the sake of holiness. Be sober so that you'll be utterly devoted to God above everything and through everything and for God in every single thing. With that, Peter continues in verse 17 and says this, and if you call on him as father in prayer, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or 
blemish. So Peter is telling us to live our lives in reverential fear, in reverential awe toward God so that we'll be empowered in this world to live holy lives, beloved. Our power to live holy lives is not inside of us. And when we struggle with living holy ways, I'll tell you why that is. It's because we're looking to the wrong source. If we will only look to our Father and depend upon our Father, receive the ministry of our Father through His words, by His Spirit, through the blood of the Lamb of God, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, then, beloved, we will be empowered to live as our Father wants us to live. We will learn to be holy as He is holy. We will learn to be set apart for His name and for His purposes in the world. If we will hear our Father speaking through us, through Peter today, beloved, And if we will follow in his will and ways, Peter goes on to tell us in the rest of chapter 4 that our lives will not necessarily be easy. We will suffer in this world. We will suffer, but God will be near to us because God has created this life in the world for us. In fact, Paul came along later and said that we have been saved by grace through faith. We did not save ourselves. We have done nothing for God. God has done everything for us. And why did he do that? He continues and says, for God created us in Christ Jesus for good works, for good works, beloved, for action in the world, to be engaged in the purposes of God in the world. And Peter or Paul says that God is going to do this in us. He is going to cause us to walk in his will and ways. And so as we have said many times in the life of this church, our, our part is simple. Our part is to surrender to him to surrender to the God who would make us holy and use us in the world. With that, will you please turn with me to chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to look with you at verses 7 through 11. So Peter begins in 4, 7 and says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now the main statement here in this text is that the end of things are are at hand. That great day when Jesus Christ is going to explode onto the sky so that every single eye sees him and every single ear hears him and every single knee bows before him, that great day on which Jesus Christ will gather the nations and judge every living person, that great day in which he will bless the righteous and which he will judge the unrighteous forever and ever. Beloved, Peter says that great day is coming sooner than we think. Now, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked this earth, and so for us, it might seem like it's been a long time. But as I mentioned last week, Peter says elsewhere that in God's eyes, 1,000 years is just like a day. Time is nothing to God. God has time, right? He's an eternal being. And so Jesus will come when he's ready to come. Whenever he's ready to come, beloved, his coming is nearer than we think. And so Peter wants us to be ready. He wants us to be alert, He wants us to be uh, prepared for that moment, and so he calls us to be here in this text self-controlled and sober-minded. Now that word self-controlled there is an interesting one to me. It literally means to be sane, to be a sane person. It means to be in your right mind. And so Peter and the word for sober-minded is just the same. It literally means to be sober from deluding influences. So Peter is saying that since the end is coming soon, And since there will be eternal consequences at that moment, that we should be sane people in our thinking, 
and that we should be sober from the stupefying lies that this world tells us. And again, I think that the way we do this is by drawing near to our Father and saturating our lives in His words. When God's voice is the loudest voice in our lives, we come more and more into a sane mind, sane from the way that God defines it. We come more and more into a sober mind as God would define it. We come more and more to be gripped by the fact of Jesus returning and the eternal consequences that will come about at that time. Now, in this text, Peter gives two specific actions that he wants us to take. So he wants us to be sane and sober for reasons. And the reasons he highlights here is prayer and love for one another. So Peter knows with regard to prayer, because he listened to his master very well up in the upper room that day, that the way that a person who is sober and sane in this world ought to live is by calling on the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter knew that this person will be heard by the Father because he is in unity with Christ. And Peter knew that as the Father answers that person's prayers, he's going to be fruitful and joyful in the world. In this way, beloved, by living a, a, a prayerful way of life, Peter became very fruitful and he became one of the pillars of the, of the early church. And now he looks to us, just like Jesus has said to us and says, come and live in this way as well. Be sane and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be sane and sober-minded so that you will call upon your Father at all times and talk to Him about everything. Be sane and sober-minded so that you'll see properly and pray pleasingly and so that the Father will answer and cause you to be a fruitful, joyful person. Be prepared for this action. Pray, pray, pray. Be people of prayer. Fruitful people are prayerful people. Prayerless people are fruitless people. So be prepared for prayer. Then the second thing he highlights for us is love. If you'll look with me at verse 8. Peter says, above all, which is a strong way to put it, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. He's saying, welcome each other into your lives and don't complain about the difficulties that are implicated there. Beloved, we're going to get on each other's nerves. Every one of us is going to sin against the others of us. We're going we're to uh, be like iron that sharpens iron, which means that sparks are going to fly from time to time, right? So Peter is saying, don't grumble about this. Maybe your friend is a pain in the neck. You're probably a pain in the neck too. It's okay. Be gracious. Be gracious lavish grace upon each other, just as God has lavished a waterfall of grace upon you. Be gracious to each other. And then he continues encouraging us to serve each other. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to what? Not to exalt the self. Use your gift to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God himself may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is encouraging us to be sane and sober so that we might live a particular way of life. Be prayerful people and be loving people. Pray to God, love one another. And again, Peter goes on in this chapter to talk about the realities of what it's going to be like for us 
when we live like this in the world. He says we're going to suffer, but he tells us not to be surprised and not to be depressed by this fact. He tells us that in our suffering, we're actually going to become like Jesus Christ. It's ultimately going to be good news for us as we live this way of life in the world, as we live a a devoted, sober, sane life in the world. And so he concludes in chapter 4, verse 19, and says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, no, God's going to cause it all to work out well. So be sane, be sober, be focused, be devoted to God. Be focused on the hope that is coming to you for the end is at hand. Live a life of prayer. Live a life of love in the world and trust your Father for what he will do. Okay, one more place. Turn with me to chapter 5. We'll start in verse 8 and go through verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. Peter begins his very final words of instruction in this letter by saying, be sober-minded and be watchful. So here, sober-minded means just the same thing again. It means to be sober. And to be watchful here means to keep watch as if you had a job and you're a guard for some kind of company or something. Or in Peter's day, it would be like being a watchman on the wall of a city where your job wasn't to just kind of pay attention if you were in the mood to pay attention. But your job is to actually, you're being paid to pay attention so that the city could be protected. Think of yourselves like that. Think of yourselves like watchmen. Be alert in this world. Be awake in this world. Be vigilant in this world. Be sober in your mind and be prepared, beloved. Be vigilant. Be watching. Don't be lazy. Don't let your guard down. Don't stop pressing in. Don't stop leaning upon God's grace. Don't stop pursuing your Father. Don't stop calling upon His name. Don't stop loving each other. Don't stop resting in the beautiful grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason Peter tells us to do that is because he says, we have a real adversary in this world who is out not simply to irritate us, but to destroy us. Satan is not interested in making our lives difficult. He's interested in absolutely destroying us. Peter compared him to a lion that's out in the field and is hungry and is prowling around in the field, not just kind of hoping that food will come, but actively looking for food. And he says when he finds someone who he can devour, he does just that. He devours that person. The Greek word there is is striking. It means to swallow. It can even mean to swallow whole. And so again, I say to you, Satan is not out just to irritate us, beloved. We have a real enemy. We have a real adversary. And right this very moment, he's trying to disrupt each of our personal walks with God. He's trying to disrupt our families. He's trying to disrupt our fellowship. He's trying to disrupt the work of God in the world. And therefore, we need to be on the watch. We need to be alert. We need to be vigilant and not allow ourselves to follow, fall asleep. Now, I think that this calls for sober wisdom. Because often, the devil does not come to us and say, hey, I'm a lion, you look like food, and I'm about to eat you. If, if he presented himself as a scary threat, we would get that fear impulse, and we would run away from there as fast as we could. Satan is much more beguiling than this. He often comes to us as an angel of light, the Bible says. He often comes to us and tries to persuade us that what he wants is good and what God wants is bad. He often comes to us just like he did to Adam and Eve, and he just begins to question God's wisdom and God's words and God's goodness. He said, did God really say that? I mean, really? 
If you do this thing God said not to do, you know, you're gonna actually have more joy. You're gonna, life is gonna open up for you. Why are you letting yourself be so restricted by all these strict religious rules that God gave? Did God really say this and that? Is that what he really meant? Satan is a beguiling adversary, beloved, and his main battlefield is our minds. If he can change your mind about what God thinks is good, then he can probably bring you into action. And so again, Peter is saying, be awake, be aware, be alert. Satan's game book is actually pretty small. Know his game book and watch out for him. And I want you to notice that Peter encourages us not to be passive before Satan. He tells us to resist him. He tells us to rise up and fight against Satan and not just to lay down and let him have his way in our lives. He tells us to stand firm. And I'm very touched by the fact that Peter said, stand firm in your faith, in your faith. So the way that you resist Satan is not by looking at to yourself and depending upon your own power. The way that you resist Satan is by looking to Jesus who is so much greater than Satan. If you try to resist your adversary in your flesh, you're gonna lose. But if you try to resist your adversary by looking to Christ and covering yourself with Christ, you're gonna win. Because guess what? Satan is like a lion, but so is Jesus. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, amen? And when he roars, Satan trembles and falls to his face. Jesus and Satan are not equals or anything near to it, nothing near to it. So Peter is saying, be alert about your enemy. Be aware that he's after you, but rejoice in your Savior. Rest in your Savior. Resist Satan by hiding in your Savior, not by fearing Satan. So beloved, please hear the word of God from Peter. Be sober, be watchful, be sane, be prepared for action. Set your hope fully on Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he is doing and all that he plans to deliver to us. Listen to your father, believe your father, follow your father and live a life of mission in this world. Pray, love each other and take the gospel to the world. Again, Peter emphasizes again that as we do this, by the grace of God in Christ, we're gonna suffer in this world. But look how he encourages us in verses nine through 11. Peter invites us to remember that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever, amen. So Peter wants us, beloved, to be sober, to be sane, to be focused. He wants us to live a certain way of life, but I think he also wants us to know that the power to do this and the guarantee of these things is in God's hands, not in our hands. This is not so much something we do for God, it's something that God does in us, and our part is simply to surrender. It's to turn our face toward God, lift up our chin toward the glory of Jesus, and look at him, live our, our lives focused on him, allowing him to do his work in us. And you'll see again, I really invite you to meditate on these words later. Look at what your father's gonna do for you in the end. He's gonna restore you fully heal you, make you completely fully whole in his presence. He's gonna confirm you. 
He's gonna validate that you have a rightful place in Christ, not just for a short time, but for forever. He's gonna strengthen you. He's gonna take all your weaknesses and strengthen you by his strength. And finally, he is gonna establish you. He is gonna plant you in the firm soil of his kingdom forever and ever. He is gonna do this for you. And so you're free, beloved. You're free to come out from the world. You're free to get sane minds, sober minds, prepared minds, focused minds. You're free to do your Father's will. You're free to pray. You're free to love. You're free to take the gospel to the world. And I pray with all my heart that we will live this way of life at this church. Be sane and sober for the sake of God's mission in the world. Now with this in mind, I wanna focus our attention on the global mission of the church, and by church I mean church with a capital C. There are, of course, many things in this life with Christ that we have to focus on, but this is one of them, and I think when it comes to the remaining labor of God in the world, I think global missions is really where it's at. There is some remaining work to be done, and Jesus promised us that when this gospel is preached to all peoples around the world that he would return again. So to me, the task of global missions is at the top of the priority list for the church when it comes to what we're supposed to to do. Worship, word, and prayer are above these things because that's our fuel, that's our fire, but when it comes to what we're actually to do, I really think global missions is at the very top of the list. So let me take a little bit of time. I want to rehearse some missions history with you and help you see where we're at right now in the world today. Ralph Winter, who was the founder and director of the U.S. Center for World Missions, now called Frontier Ventures, argues that modern missions should be seen in three eras. So let me just describe these eras to you quickly. The first era was founded by William Carey. William Carey rose up and said to the church, listen church, we have to take more seriously our part in the Great Commission. We have to think more carefully about the nations of the world. We have to be more aggressive about taking the gospel to the nations of the world. And you may think that that's a no-brainer. But in William Carey's day, he he literally got official written feedback from the powers that be that said this, and I quote from memory, but this will be pretty close to what it said. They said, listen, if God wants to win the nations to himself, he does not need your help and he does not need our, our help. End of discussion. That response was very deflating for William Carey, so he wrote a little book. It's, I, I actually put it on a Microsoft Word document, made the margins nice and big, and it was only nine pages long, so you can Google this thing and read it. If you just uh, type in William Carey and inquiry, it, it will come up, but here's the full title, an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. So what Carey was getting at is that, yes, God will win the nations, but how does God win the nations? God uses his church to win the nations to Christ. God uses his people to reach his people around the world. So yes, God will do it, but God will do it through us. That little booklet became what Ralph Winter called the Magna Carta of the modern missions movement. It gripped the church in William Carey's era. And because of that little booklet and because of William Carey's work, uh, mission societies rose up. Prayer movements rose up that ended up sending missionaries around the world. So many organizations that actually still exist today began under William Carey's influence and because of that little book. So I encourage you sometime, if you have time, to read it and see what God has done. In that day, the missions-minded church thought that it would be best to focus on the coastal lands, mainly of Africa and Asia. Their thinking was that if you could get a beachhead in certain coastal areas, the gospel would infiltrate into the rest of those continents. And so that was the strategy. 
This era is marked by two things. The church has a responsibility to fulfill the Great Commission by the grace of God and by the power of God alone. And strategy-wise, they thought, let's focus on the coastal areas. The second era began with Hudson Taylor. When he rose up as a young man, by the way, those of you who are 18, 19, 20, do not undersell what God could do in your lives. Hudson Taylor was 19, 20 years old. When he rose up and said to the missions organizations in his life that they needed to take the gospel not only to the coastlands, but to the inland areas, he could see that the strategy was not gonna work of establishing beachheads on the coast and just hoping that by osmosis or assimilation that the gospel would go into the rest of the countries. He knew that we had to risk life and limb to take the gospel to actually where people are living. Now again, that might seem like a no-brainer to us, but the main agency that Hudson Taylor was interacting with said to him, if you want to do that, you are going to be responsible for spilling the blood of so many young people, and we will never cooperate with you in that period and end of story. That response greatly depressed Hudson Taylor. So he went out on a beach one day and he was walking back and forth and praying, just filled with anxiety. And he said that at some point the Lord came out over him and spoke to him and said, Hudson, you're not the one sending those people. I am the one sending those people. I'm calling you to rise up and mobilize people, but I am sending them. I am responsible for their lives. I am responsible for their protection. I am responsible for their blood. So don't fear. Do what I'm commanding you. And with great courage, Hudson Taylor, courage, by the way, the kind that comes from the Holy Spirit, not from his flesh, he pressed on. He pressed on. He founded China Inland Mission and got hundreds of people to go into the interior of China and, and establish churches around that country. That ministry still exists today. It's called Overseas Missionary Fellowship, otherwise known as OMF International, and they're still doing the work of God in the world to this day. But the thing we should understand about era number two is this insight that we had to go from the coastal lands to the interior, yes, at great cost to ourselves, perhaps even the cost of life. Revelation 2.10 became very important to the church in that day, where Jesus said to them, be faithful unto death, and I will give you eternal life. The third era of missions began in a quiet way, and it slowly built over about 20 years, and eventually came to engulf the whole mission-minded church around the world primarily through the work of a man named Cameron Townsend, who was first a missionary in Guatemala and then later founded Wycliffe Bible Translators, and the work of a man named Donald McGavran, who was a missionary in India and later became the founding dean of Fuller Seminary, where he taught missions for many years. Those two came at it in different ways, but they, they sort of uh, uh, focused the vision of the church in some ways that are still impacting us today. Specifically, they came to see that even when you take the gospel inland to some area, you're not necessarily dealing with a unified people group. Often you are dealing with people who are very different from each other. Cameron Townsend, who founded Wycliffe Bible Translators, when he went to Guatemala, he had become fluent in Spanish. He was there sharing the gospel with people and he discovered once he got there, 80% of people in Guatemala don't speak Spanish. 80%. The tribal peoples, they speak different languages. And they don't all speak the same language either. And he began to realize we have to think in more narrow terms if we're going to get the gospel to come to all the nations of the world. And so through their work, 
This whole idea of a people group came about, so let me just take a second and and define for you what a a people group is, and then we'll talk about some other things. This is quoted from Ralph Winter, but he's quoting a definition that others had, had developed. A people group is a significantly large group of individuals who perceive themselves to have a common affinity for one another because of their shared language, religion, ethnicity, residence, occupation, class, or caste, situation, etc., or a combination of these things. For evangelistic purposes, a people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. As this perspective began to grip the missions-minded church around the world, Ralph Winter gave an address at the 1974 Luzanne Conference on, or Congress on World Evangelization, and Donald McGavern said that that address was the most significant address that had been given in his lifetime. McGavern said that that address was going to shape missions in the world from 1974 to the year 2000, and McGavern was wrong about that because Winter's uh, words are still shaping the mission's life of the church now to 2018. I think in some ways, uh, Ralph Winter's address in 1974 inaugurated a fourth era of, of missions. I'm not sure if that's exactly true, but I'm telling you this address had a massive impact on the church. So in that address, Ralph Winter defined an, a, a reached people group like this. He said that a reached people group is one in which there is an indigenous community of believing Christians who are able to evangelize their group. So a reached group does not mean that there's no evangelism left to be done, like the United States. There's a lot of evangelism left to be done here. But there are lots and lots of indigenous churches who can do that work. So from a missions perspective, that is considered a reached group. An unreached group, on the other hand, is a group in which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians able to evangelize this group. So there might be some believers, but there's no church or there's not a sufficient-sized church or a a sufficient structure there. That group is then considered unreached. Now, this insight was very helpful. It was very clarifying about what the life of missions ought to be because here's what Winter went on to say. He said, most non-Christians in the world today are not culturally near neighbors of any Christians so that it will take a special kind of cross-cultural evangelism to reach them. We're gonna have to think differently, we're gonna have to live differently, we're gonna have to act differently if we wanna be on God's mission in the world and not just sit around and enjoy the grace of God without engaging in his mission in the world. We're gonna have to think differently. So uh, Winter introduced this scale it was later called a scale, but it, he, he had these distinctions between E1 evangelism, E2, and E3 evangelism, where the word E, the letter E, just stands for evangelism. Somebody later came along and added a, a zero to that. So if we can go to that next slide, here's a little uh, graphic of it. So you can see E0 inside the hut, and then E1, E2, E3. E0 evangelism is evangelism that happens within a church culture. This is what we might call revivalism where the gospel is preached by a guy like Jonathan Edwards to a culture that basically knows the gospel but either does not truly believe or has fallen asleep to the things of the gospel. E1 evangelism is when people from a similar culture take the gospel to people inside their culture. So if you and I are to go out into the Elk River area today and share the gospel with somebody that's among the 75% of people in our area who don't know Jesus, That will be E1 evangelism. It's culturally near evangelism. 
E2 evangelism is when you're sharing the gospel with someone who is in a similar culture, but that is distinct from yours. So when we're going to Eastern Europe, let's say that somebody from Romania shares the gospel with somebody in Hungary. Those, those cultures are similar. They have different language, different customs, different history, but they're similar. The divide across the culture is there, but it's not massive. So we'll call that E2 evangelism. And then E3 evangelism is when we're sharing the gospel with cultures that are very different from ours. Like if any of you have ever been to India or if you ever happen to go, I promise you, you are gonna feel like a true foreigner when you get into India because they think so differently about everything, not just about God, but about everything. Okay, now with this in mind, Winter helped the church of his day and the church of our day to see that the remaining task of evangelism around the world really rests in this E3 category. There, and, and the thing about it is that most missionaries and most mission dollars are sent to support E1 and E2 category stuff. But if we're gonna reach all the nations of the world, we gotta shift dollars, we have to shift focus, shift personnel to the E3 category. We got to go after the unreached people groups of the world. And this address, beloved, gave rise to a, just a tidal wave of activity. After he gave this address, entire missions agencies rose up, other missions agencies changed their focus. Much has happened since 1974, and much progress has been made, and yet there's still more progress to be made. So I went to this, pro this uh, website, awesome website by the way, called joshuaproject.org. They also have an app, and I gathered some numbers from them, so I wanna share with you now sort of the current state of the world and the current call for missions. A few numbers. The world population right now is around 7.6 billion people. If you look at how many people groups there are in the world, if you just consider language itself, there are about 10,900 people groups that speak distinct languages. But if you sort of hone in, if you focus in a little bit more on those who speak the same language and think more about ethnicity and other cultural differences, there are actually about 13,000 people groups in the world. And if you hone in a little bit more and look even a little closer at the smaller groups that are, really have strong affinity with each other, they're somewhere in the neighborhood of 24,000 people groups out in the world. Now if you go and do some research on this on your own, you're gonna find numbers uh, of people groups ranging all over the place. Sometimes the reason that the numbers are different is because they're, they, they're counting the numbers with different assumptions. But I think Joshua Project is probably the best ministry in the world uh, to get this as close to right as we can. So with that in mind, when you look at the people groups that are separated by language and ethnicity, that, that second level, there are about 7,078 people groups in this world that are unreached completely. There's no established Christian witness in their culture. That represents 41.6% of the human population, or 3.16 billion people, beloved. 3.16 billion people have no access to Christ. 3.16 billion people <clears throat> don't even have the opportunity to say no to Jesus. And that is the remaining task of world missions in the world. We have to get the gospel to where people are so that they can hear the gospel and either say yes or say no. And the reason <clears throat> that Pastor Kevin and I have been so passionate about getting this church involved in mission, actually from before we were even officially incorporated as a church, we were supporting missionaries, is because we want us to play our part. We're one small church, and we can't do everything, but beloved, we can do something. 
We can't win all the peoples to, to Jesus Christ. We can't even take the gospel to all of them, but we can do something. We can play our part, and I rejoice in the fact that you all have passionately cooperated with us to play that part over so many years. There's little we can do on our own, but in cooperation with our mother church, Bethlehem Baptist Church, in cooperation with our denomination, which is a massive denomination, 16 million people. They have almost 4,000 missionaries in the world. In cooperation with ministries like TLI and others, we can make a dent somewhere. In the last 10 and a half years, beloved, we have not buried the talents that God give, has given to us. Even if our, uh, our indent has been small, over the last 10 and a half years, we have made an impact in places like India, and Papua New Guinea, and Vietnam, and now Vanuatu, and Somalia, Albania, Romania, and other places in the world as well. I want you to, to be encouraged, beloved. The mission of God in the world is glorious, and the task is great, but we're in the game. We're in the game. I was praying this week about what I should say to you and how I should present this message, and I felt the Lord so powerfully grip me and say, Charlie, encourage them. Encourage the people. I talked to a pastor friend of mine a week or two ago, and he's just pulling his teeth to get his people to even realize that missions matters at all. They don't care. It's just not on their radar. And so he's just laboring, and I thought, oh, how graced God has made me that I am in a fertile soil of a church who loves God's work around the world. And I love you for it, beloved. I love you for this. And I pray to God that you will feel encouragement for him, for your engagement in the global mission of God in the world over these years. Of course, we have growing to do. Of course, I want us to stretch. Of course, I want us to sacrifice and give more. I want us to enter into the more and more of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. You're doing great, so do more by the grace of God and by the power of God. But beloved, I really, really pray that you'll be encouraged today. We cannot do everything, but we can play a part. And from what I can see, this church is seeking to play its part. And again, I love you for that. Part of the part that Jesus has given us to play as a church right now is to put Ethan Larson and I on a plane and send us to Albania and Romania. But I want you to know that we are united in this thing. This is not about Ethan and I. This is not about TLI. This is about a church cooperating with an organization to go to a people who needs to be encouraged and who needs to hear the gospel. And you all might as well be getting on that plane with us. You all might as well be landing in Albania and Romania with us. You might as well be praying with the Andersons with us. You might as well be training those pastors with us. And the reason I say that is because we are fully united before God in this mission. This mission is not about Ethan and I. This mission is about us. Some of you have given to the trip. Some of you have prayed. Some of you will pray still. Whatever your part is, beloved, we all have a part, and this is about us. It's not just about the two of us. So with that, let me show you a couple pictures of the people we're going to see. If we can, uh, I'm sorry that this is hard to see, but that's Amoth and Meredith Anderson. Their oldest kid there is Isaiah, and then to the left is Seth. Their little girl, which I wish that was easier to see because she's just the cutest thing in the world. Olivia is her name, and then Gabriel is their son there. And then if we'll go to the next slide, this is Pastor Sarin and his wife, Simona. Uh, Ezra on the left. Whoa, going to give me a seizure here. Uh, Lois in the middle, and then Amy on the top. This picture's a little dated because now that little baby Amy is now two years old. So, so that's uh, the family that we're going to see in Romania. He's the key pastor that's organizing all the other leaders that will be there. And if you go to the next picture, it's just a conglomeration of the two so that you can be looking at them as we gather and pray in just a little bit. Ethan and I are going. 
by the grace of God and in the power of God, but beloved, we're going on your behalf and we're going with you at our backs. And so I wanna, I wanna call upon you to pray for us while we're gone. I wanna call for you to pray for our families and to reach out to our wives and families while we're gone. I wanna call for you to play your part because beloved, not all of us can get on that plane, but all of us can play a part in God's global mission in the world. And I pray with all my heart that you've seen with a little bit more sobriety, a little bit more clarity, a little bit more saneness about what God is up to in the world so that you'll sacrifice, sacrifice for the glory of his name and the good of the nations. Now, let me just close before I call us to prayer by suggesting six ways that you can grow in your engagement in global missions. Don't let all this overwhelm you. Just maybe pick one or two things and, and just choose to grow in some area. Six quick things, which by the way, this is also in, in your bulletin. The first thing you can do is commit to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus for the nations of the world. Prayer matters. The church only marches forward through intercession. So pray, beloved. Don't think it's a small thing when you sit in your living room or at your dining room table and pray for the nations. It is not a small thing. So commit yourself to praying for the nations. Number two, learn about global missions. Educate yourself. Learn to think as your father thinks by looking at the Bible, but also by looking at some websites. Joshua Project is probably the number one site I would suggest that you go to. It's just an awesome source of information. They also have an app that I have on my phone and every day I just push on it and an unreached people group of the day comes up. You can take a few minutes to pray for it. You can also just learn all kinds of things on the app or on the website. I also encourage you to go to Frontier Ventures website. I think it's frontierventures.org. A lot of great historical documents there and just things that will help you to sharpen your perspective. Or if you're still a person that likes print things, uh, I would suggest the book Operation World to you, which is really thick, but it's actually just a daily prayer guide where you can pray for the nations of the world day by day. What I'm saying is educate yourselves, beloved. Put your minds on the things of God. See this world as God sees it. And let people who are really invested in missions educate you a little bit. The third thing then is educate other people. Maybe there's somebody in the life of this church that you feel is right on the edge of getting a flame for global missions. Why don't you take them out to coffee and just talk with them about missions. Open up the Bible. Open up something from a website and just rejoice together. Pray together. But don't, don't just be a, a reservoir. Be a river. Let God teach you and then let God use you to inspire other people. Number four is you can serve in practical ways. You can write missionaries a, a, a handwritten note or maybe an email to just encourage them. Or maybe you can reach out to a missionary and ask if there's some way that you can practically support them here stateside or, or whatever. If you have a heart to serve in practical ways, let me know and I'll help you figure that out. Five, you can give of your resources. You can give money to our church, to the missions fund, or to our church in general. Part, portion of that goes to missions. Or you can support TLI. You can support Ethan. You can support David and Carmen Gunnerson. You can support uh, Rebecca Springfield. Whatever it is, sacrifice of your dollars. It's not a sacrifice, really. It's an investment. So give. And then finally, number six, I want to challenge each of you to pray about going. I've done this throughout the years, and I don't think everyone probably is called by God to go, but I want to ask you to go to your father and ask him anyway. I would love to see if the majority of our church would get on a plane and at least go for a short-term mission at least once, but maybe God is calling some of you to mid-term and even long-term missions, so I want to ask you again to seek the father and pray about going yourself. With that, <clears throat> I want to ask us now to just huddle up 
We have uh, about two minutes, but we're going to take about ten minutes. Apologize for that. If you'll just get in little circles, and let's just pray for God's global work in the world, and please pray for Ethan and I as well, and then we'll close in just a minute. Our Father, we thank you for this brief time that you have given us in the Word. We thank you for the kindness of helping Ralph Winter and others like him to instruct us and to help us see as you would have us to see. I pray, Father, that by your Spirit, now you would teach us to be sane and to be sober, to be prepared for action, to be set on the things of Christ, that we would be holy as you are holy, devoted to the things that are important to you. And I thank you, Father, because you promised us that when we pray to you in Jesus' name that you hear and answer us. So even though our time of prayer has been brief, it has mattered and it will be effective. Fruit will come because we called upon your name. And so I thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. I thank you for answering our prayers. Now, Father, please receive our praise as we rise to sing to you in Jesus' name.